This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Under the best of circumstances, our understanding of our parents progresses from adulation to perspective to a deep sense of love imbued with seeing them as fully human. Sometimes that progression is strewn with obstacles like divorce, animosity, and egoism. Patricia Gilman's memoir, The Critic's Daughter, is a love letter to her father, the renowned critic Richard Gilman. What makes this memoir so powerful is Priscilla's ability to reveal all the dimensions of her father, the wondrous and the warts, and with empathy, she arrives at a place of devotion and love and understanding. We, the reader, are the beneficiary of this exquisite journey of understanding of a father and his daughter. Priscilla, welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh, Roxanne, I'm so thrilled to be here, and you moved me almost to tears with that introduction. Thank you so much. (laughs) Priscilla, so you describe your father in the prologue as playful and powerful and cerebral, an idealist and a romantic. And, you know, to me as a reader, it just sounded wondrous, you know, like literally wondrous. Yes. Describe some of those moments and how it, you know, because in the book you do a good job of putting yourself in the shoes of the of the little girl you were. Like I was struck by the thunderstorm in Spain oh, or yeah. or going to the theater. So give us a couple of examples of what that felt like. You know, in act one of the book, Roxanne, I structure my book in terms of acts, nodding to theatricality. And act one is about my father's power. And that power had two almost contradictory dimensions. In the world, he was this august, eminent, austere, very, very difficult to please critic. And at home with me and my sister, he presided over our childhood. I describe him as being like both a priest of the cathedral space that was my childhood and also as a wonderstruck parishioner. In other words, he adored me and my sister and my brother. He loved us as his individual children, but he also revered childhood per se. Mm. And he would come and have initiate conversations with our stuffed animals and our dolls. And he would come. I love that. <laughs> I know. He'd say, Pannington, how are you doing today? What's going on, Pannington? Tell me what's up. And, the, and, and carrying on these elaborate conversations with our stuffed animals and dolls. And he would be the minister at the weddings where we would marry our Madame Alexander dolls to our poos or our stuffed bears. And he would give them a marriage certificate on Yale School of Drama stationery, signed Reverend Gilman. And he was the ringmaster of a circus that we put on in Italy over the summers with our friend Sebastian Tiger, the son of Lionel Tiger and Virginia Tiger, two eminent writers and scholars. And he just, he would watch all the PBS shows with us and enjoy them as much, if not more than we did, Roxanne. 
And he would read to us for hours on end and he would give each character a different voice or a different intonation. And he just threw himself wholeheartedly and without reservation into the world of our childhood. And he made us feel that what we cared about and what we loved mattered. Mm. And before we launch into how that world abruptly ended, let's talk about the literary perch that your parents sat on. So (gasps) Uh not only was your father a renowned critic, but your mother, Lynn Nesbitt, was a legendary, renowned literary agent. So you also, not only did you have this wondrous childlike world, but you also had, you know, the legendary writers of the time as part of your household. What what, what was really all did. of that like? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of crazy. Roxanne, it's crazy. Like when I started looking back at it, I thought to myself, it seemed completely normal and it just seemed this is the way people live, that you have Toni Morrison coming over for lunch and you've got Bob Gottlieb uh, coming for the weekend with his daughter, Lizzie, who just made the documentary about Bob Caro and Bob Gottlieb. Bob Caro, also my mother's client, and Beatty, Michael Crichton. And I grew up initially in this apartment building on 93rd and Central Park West, 333 Central Park West. It was rent-controlled. My parents paid about $140, $150 a month to rent three bedrooms and a maid's room. My bedroom looked onto Central Park. Now, I do say, Roxanne, right, one of the reasons it was cheap was that the paint was peeling, you know, the tubs were shipping, but we didn't care. We had people coming over for cocktail parties or dinners, and I got bedtime stories from Toni Morrison, from Bernard Malamud. We called him Uncle Burn who is a very close friend of my father's and preceded my father as the president of Pan America. And it just felt like on any given day, some wonderfully smart, interesting, maybe scary, like Harold Brodke scared us a little bit. And there were others, Susan Sontag, I remember being very austere and, and solemn. But it just felt like you said wondrous and sort of Every day or every night, we could have an amazing conversation with someone. or so, But I didn't think of them as famous. I didn't think of them as mm-hmm. eminent. I just thought of them as interesting and fascinating and fun, a lot of them. Really, really fun. Like Christopher Sir from Sesame Street coming over with albums, you know, signed by Bob and Maria, the cast of Sesame Street. <laughs> and I did have this feeling of like, this is so wonderful. And there was this vibrancy to every day this feeling that reading and books and art and theater and film mattered and that I got exposed to so many people who were making vital contributions in those fields. Yeah. Was there a moment where you understood that they were famous and this was unusual? You know, not when I was little. I think as I got older, you know, we moved to, my parents bought an apartment on 77th Street when I was eight. And that was a fancier apartment. And it was, I think it was like $140,000 they paid for this huge Mm. apartment. But I do remember sort of like when I would go to visit my mother at the office, seeing the secretary, seeing the assistant, seeing how everybody was sort of like, oh, Lynn, Lynn's children are here. And feeling, wow, I guess my mom is like a very important person. And 
some of the parties with my father's students. I remember when Meryl Streep was one of my father's favorite students and she came to two parties when I was a little kid. And then I remember when she was in The Deer Hunter and she was in Manhattan and she was in Kramer versus Kramer. And I started thinking, like, I'm meeting a lot of people in the early stages of their career. Mm. Henry Winkler was another beloved student of my father's. And then when he got happy days, you know, starting to realize my parents were involved. You said perch, and I love that. But also they were involved in the sort of pipeline of mm. nurturing and fostering and producing people who would make important entertainment and artistic contributions to society. Yeah, I mean, to me, as someone who grew up as the child of immigrants. Yeah, which my dad did. Yeah. Yeah, living in New York, you know, living in the same New York, it was the world that I kind of had a slight glimpse of. And the fact that you were living in it, it just felt miraculous to me. So we get to this world. It all seems great, although you do see some tension. Your father does have a temper. You witness a little bit of acrimony between your parents, but that version of your father vanished with your parents' divorce. So I've got a couple of questions around Mm -hmm. that. One is that you suggest that despite what you call the protected sanctity of your childhood, Mm -hmm. you never felt quite secure about your dad. Yep. And the confidence in your parents' word was shattered. So what was it that made the divorce so devastating? I mean, divorces are hard and painful, but you describe the impact of a divorce on your dad as sort of, you know, exposing him in a way that became obvious to you and your sister, Claire. Yeah. In a very difficult way. Yes, yes. So in terms of my sense all along, Roxanne, from a very young age, that my father was vulnerable. I always knew that he smoked cigarettes as a way of almost, I would say, self-medicating and as a way of coping with writer's block, and as a way of managing his moods. And that always scared me, because in the 70s, you were starting to hear about cigarettes Mm. are dangerous, and they're not so glamorous. And my sister and my brother and I tried to get him to quit in all these ways, or asked him to quit, and and he wouldn't. I also felt increasingly, as I observed my friends' parents' marriages, that there was something that was just not there in the connection between my parents. They just didn't seem, there was no physical affection between them that I could see. And while they seemed to greatly respect each other and get along as friends, I didn't feel a romantic connection between them. And I remember comparing them to, say, Bob and Maria Gottlieb or Dixie Seaver, other sort of literary couples that I knew and just feeling like there was something missing. And in terms of the word being shattered, when my parents would fight, and they didn't fight all the time, but when they fought, my sister and I would sometimes ask them, 
are you going to get divorced? Because Sebastian Tiger's parents had split up around this time, and this was the late 70s, and divorce was in the air. I mean, remember, Kramer versus Kramer comes out in 1979. And they would always say, we will never, ever get divorced. We're absolutely committed to this family. And so they explicitly told us it's not going to happen. And then when it did happen, and it took them a long time to get divorced, it was a separation that went on for many, many years. It just felt like we'd been told something and then the rug was pulled out from under us, right? They were splitting up. The way you describe the changed circumstances of your father, you know, I often think about when I read or witness things that that moment when you realize that your parents either can't protect you or are weak Mm -hmm. in some way totally upends your world. And the descriptions that you have in the book of your father didn't even have enough money for an apartment. So he was like what we now call couch surfing exactly. for a while. And and you and Claire would go there. And this was the beginning of you feeling like you were responsible for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us what that looked like and what made you feel that way and what was going on for him. So the night that my mother announced that my parents were doing what she called a trial separation, and I write in the book that I knew it was not a trial. I I had a sense from looking at her face that she was determined and that they were going to split. I saw my father cry. My father told me, I don't want this. I don't want to lose this family. And he's shaking and crying. And then about a month later, when he was staying in the apartment one night and he had gotten upset with Claire when she spilled her apple juice... And then he was apologizing to me and saying, I'm so sorry. And then he looked into space and he said, sometimes I think I'd kill myself if it weren't for you girls. Mm. And at that moment, I thought to myself, my father's very survival is my responsibility. And I I, I don't want to suggest that it was like a before and after where it was an absolute change. I had always felt all along from a very young age that when my father was with me, he was the happiest that if I walked into a room, my father would smile, my father would light up, that there was something in our connection that steadied him and buoyed him and that Mm -hmm. he loved me and my sister and my brother from his first marriage, 12 years older, more than anything in the world. I never doubted that for one second. But seeing him in such reduced financial circumstances, going to restaurants with him and having him say, girls, you have to split a meal and we're hungry. And Claire's complaining and saying, but that's not enough food. And I'm kicking her under the table to get her to stop because I can see that he's stressed financially. And I see him taking ketchup and salt and pepper from the bins at McDonald's and pouring them into his shoulder bag. And I think he can't afford to buy these basic condiments. And I do think that he was an adjunct at Yale. He wasn't making a lot of money. But I also think that it was an era where all of a sudden New York City was starting to get expensive. We were in the 80s. Mm. Reagan was elected the fall that my parents split up. I don't think that's a coincidence in terms of 
how challenging it became to set up a household on the Upper West Side in particular, which had been really cheap in the 70s. And all of a sudden in the 80s, Columbus Avenue was becoming like the chic spot where all the cool stores were opening. And I remember my friends saying, oh, it's so wonderful. You know, you live right off of Columbus. You have all this stuff. And But I would think to myself, but this is going to make it harder for my father to live near me. Mm. Well, I remember, you know, as you say this, my husband and I lived on West 67th. Briefly, we lived there in the 70s between Central Park West and Columbus. And, you know, you'd be, it'd get a little gritty as you went north. And you know what I always think of as sort of the dividing line? Yeah. It's Silver Palette opening a shop the size of a closet <laughs> on Columbus. And all of a sudden, that seemed like the beginning of, no, now we live in a chic neighborhood. Roxanne, that's hilarious. I don't remember if I have Silver Palette in my book, but we were obsessed with Silver Palette. I remember going <laughs> into that teeny little place and my mother saying, this has the most delicious food. And it, it was a marker that the neighborhood was becoming chic. Exactly. Exactly. So you now feel a kind of responsibility. He's he's what I would call lost in the desert. Yeah. And your mother, I, I was fascinated by two things that happened around this time. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in hearing what your take on it is, because you don't seem critical of her no. in the book. But I became critical of her in two regards. Mm -hmm. One is you were 10 or 11. You were 10 when they got divorced. Mm -hmm. And your mother starts describing, she does two things. She describes his sexual life, his impotence, his affairs. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, you're sort of flattered and feel close to her because she's sharing things. Absolutely, yes. You know, that feels intimate. We want our parents to do that. Yes. And on the other, you're like, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Roxanne, you nailed it. You know, I felt, I absolutely felt, oh, wow, she trusts me. Making her confidant and... I also did feel, and I still feel, that she was doing it. She thought she was doing it to protect me. Because remember, I had found that letter that my father wrote to his first wife. And that was the first kind of glimmering that I had that something not typical in terms of his sexuality. Because he asked his first wife to dominate him. And it was a letter about sort of what we would now call BDSM tendencies. My father was submissive. And I read this letter and I went to my mother after my father left because he had been staying in the apartment briefly and left the letter lying out and I found it. And I said, mommy, I found this letter and um, I'm feeling weird. And I described it to her. And I think in a way, Roxanne, the floodgates opened for her in the sense that she, she says to me, I've been trying to protect you girls from this for years. He would leave pornography under the cushions of the sofa where you were playing. And I was always afraid you would find them. And then she says, you know, I didn't do that kind of sexuality. I wasn't interested in that. And then that led into he had affairs because I didn't give him what he wanted sexually. And so he went elsewhere. And to my mother's credit, I will say 
that even as she was telling me things that today, like as a mom myself, I look at my kids at 10 and I'm like, I would never tell them any of this. Right. In a million years, I wouldn't tell them any of this. But I do think she felt that I had been exposed to this. I was really confused by it. She wanted me to know that it wasn't something that she had done with him. And she wanted me to understand why the marriage had broken up. Mm -hmm. As she described the affairs to me, she didn't do it in a way like I would imagine a lot of people would do with good reason, ranting and saying, oh, you know, he cheated on me and he's such a terrible person. She never described him as a terrible person. She said in a way, she felt that the affairs were helpful to her because these women would do things with him that she didn't want to do. And she said to me, he's not a womanizer. He's not, he's not predatory. He just wanted things that I didn't want to give him. Nonetheless, Roxanne, I'm 10 years old. Yeah. And, and okay, so I could, I could, with a stretch, understand the context of that. Here's the thing that I thought felt cruel. So she becomes enamored of Alice Miller's drama of the gifted child, came out in 1981. You were born in 70. Yep. And... She explains to you that what looks like love and devotion. Now, one of the things that you held dear that she would have known was your father's love for you, Mm -hmm. right? And she explains to you that that was an exhibition of grandiosity Mm -hmm. that is not quite love. So. Now, you described this in the book, and again, you're generous towards her, but as a reader, I'm like thinking, Priscilla is 11. (laughs) I know, I know. So if you can put your 11-year-old shoes, do that, but now in your grown-up shoes, how does that inform you, that conversation? You know, I think, and that Alice Miller book was all the rage. Everyone was reading it. Everybody was talking about it. Yeah. I'm not sure if my mom was in therapy at this point yet. I don't think she was. And I believe that she read that book. and, And I've had so many therapists and psychiatrists, both that I've worked with that, you know, have been my therapist and psychiatrists that I've spoken to, or actually a bunch of people who've read my book and contacted me. And they've all said, your father is not a narcissist. Like, this is not, he's filled Mm. with empathy. Like, this is not him at all. But I think that there was some part of my mom that felt guilty on a deep level about breaking up the family. She knew that my father had not wanted it. And she was trying to explain to herself, right? Yeah. Why did I feel so drained when I was with him? Why did I feel so exhausted? Why did I feel that I had to be bolstering him constantly because my father, as you know, you've read the book, struggled with insecurity. His parents uh, were very, judged him very harshly, did not believe that being a critic was a worthwhile thing to do or be. And my father didn't even have a BA. He struggled with insecurity around that. And I think my mother, one of the reasons why she's such a great agent is she's good at giving people confidence in their work and giving people confidence in themselves. Mm -hmm. But she was never in love with my father, which she reveals to me later in my life when I'm in college. I honestly believe that she thought she was 
figuring something out and she just got caught up in the moment out loud. Out loud. Figuring it out out loud. Yes. Thinking out loud. Yes. And you were there. Yep. And, And we'll talk about this a little bit more is, you know, one of the things that you come to learn is being resentful or angry is corrosive to you. And one of the qualities of this book that just permeated it was forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I admired that because I think that, you know, we'll come to a, a, a sentence that your father uses when he talks about critics. And as you wrote the book, this is sort of a companion question. As you wrote the book, how'd you balance what your father in the 60s described as a critic's role of loyalty to both truth and dramatic art? And how did you try to navigate that? Because you've got your mother still alive, Claire's obviously alive, you have children, um... So how did you how did you manage that? How did you try to find the line of being totally yeah. honest yet not putting anybody yeah. at risk? You know, you can never totally not put anyone at risk. I mean, there was one review that savaged my mother and said that I was savaging my mother, which I'm so glad you see that I wasn't at all like I'm if anything, people have said to me, why weren't you more critical of your father or your mother, right? Yeah. I think for me, my allegiance, and I, you know, I grapple with this on the page, Roxanne. I wanted to show that struggle on the page so that the reader could see me thinking, my father says, uh, and he's quoting George Bernard Shaw, loyalty in a critic is corruption. And the critic owes their allegiance to truth and to dramatic art, Right. And I am loyal to my father, but I'm also loyal to my mother and I'm loyal to my sister and I'm loyal to my brother and many other people, my stepmother in the story. But I think throughout, and I've written two memoirs, you know, I wrote a, um, uh, my first book is about raising my, my older son who's autistic. And in both cases, but especially with this one, I just thought I have to tell the truth as I experienced it. Mm-hmm. And I can't hold back for fear of exposing someone or betraying someone because, and I think it was back to your earlier point, because I know that I deeply loved and love both of my parents and I can see them as human beings with flaws and with challenges. And I trusted that that love would come through. I mean, there were moments where, you know, I would say to my husband, oh, good. It does. (laughs) Priscilla, I absolutely, I mean, it was the quality that made the book endearing to me because it, you know, the reader does get a good understanding of their human frailties, your parents, but each of them. Yet, I mean, as I said in the introduction, you sort of come out the other yeah. side loving them, but with a a kind of 
not a kind of understanding, but an appreciation that it doesn't mean they're perfect. Exactly. And I think that's really the deepest arc of the book, Roxanne, in that I wanted to be clear-sighted. I wanted to be honest. I didn't want to sugarcoat. I didn't want to deny or suppress. But in a sense, it's a deeper kind of love when you can look at somebody and you can acknowledge their limitations and you can see maybe they made a mistake here. All parents make mistakes. I'm a parent. I'm sure I've made many, many mistakes. And I've said things that I shouldn't have said in various moments because we're all human. And that's sort of the deepest lesson of my book. I think I would connect it to my first book in that sense, in that The Anti-Romantic Child is the title of that book. And the subtitle is The Story of Unexpected Joy, right? Like I start with this child who seems to be the antithesis of everything that I've looked forward to in being a parent. He's not playful. He's not affectionate. He doesn't want to hug me. He's not interested in the imaginative play that my father loved, right? But then in getting to look at him clearly, without projection, without fantasy, without idealizing him. It's a deeper kind of love. And isn't that how we all want to be loved eventually, right? Not that we have to pretend or play a role. And I'm using that theatrical metaphor advisedly, right? It's really about looking at my father, not just on the stage, but backstage, right? And looking at him in the Mm -hmm. round, not just from one angle, from the front but seeing him in the context of his childhood, in the context of his intellectual cohort, in the context of his struggles and his suffering. And, you know, when I find out later that my mother never was in love with him and married him on the rebound from having her heart shattered by, in a very cruel way, I would say, by Donald Bartholomew, uh, you know, it puts everything in a different light for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're reminding me, one of my closest friends is a psychiatrist, and this conversation probably goes back 20-something years ago. And it doesn't sound genius, but it struck me as profound when she said it. And what she said was, the deepest kind of love that we can each experience is to have been exposed for our greatest vulnerabilities and frailties and being loved nonetheless. I just got chills. (laughs) That's exactly what I was trying to do. You know, and I remember as you're saying this, I was reminded of, wow, that's right. Just think about when any of us get caught being our unbest selves, our worst selves, and then being forgiven or accepted. Exactly. exactly. And that's what you've done. You know, I think that's what you did for your parents. But here's a price it looked like you paid until maybe recently that I want to spend a minute on. So one of the things that often happens in houses where there's conflict is you get the kid who's going to be the good girl right? She's going to be the good girl. She's not going to make a fuss. She's going to be the grown-up. She's going to soldier on. She's not going to create, you know, not going to make demands. She's going to be the good girl. So you've had an exemplary academic life, right? You graduated from Yale, summa cum laude. You got your PhD at Yale. You won all these academic awards that Existed. So when you reflect on it now, 
Who was that life for? Was that for you? Was it for your mother? Was it for your father? Was it for all three of you? <laughs> I, because, it, it, you know, as we get to, you know, and we're slightly getting tight on time, but how do you think back on you being the good girl and how did writing this book or your father's passing liberate you from being a good girl? Yes. Oh, such great questions, Roxanne. In terms of my academic successes and my academic career, it was absolutely for both of my parents individually, and it was a way of uniting my parents and sort of playing the peacemaker because Mm. the one thing that I was always certain that they would agree on was that I should not be the two things that I wanted to be, an actress slash singer, because I did a lot of theater when I was younger, and or a writer. They didn't want me to do those two things, even though they worked with actors or they worked with writers. So you'd think I was connected. I would have had an easier time of it, but they were very protective of me. It was completely out of love. They knew I wanted to be a mother more than anything else. At that time, I think they thought it would be harder. And they both cherished, I think both of my parents felt undereducated. My mother went to Northwestern on a drama scholarship. You know, she was studying acting, interestingly. Neither of her parents had graduated from college. Uh, My father is the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, didn't even have a BA. They both felt a strong sense of inadequacy in terms of their educational preparation, and they wanted both of their children. Mm -hmm. My sister has a PhD from Columbia in art history, but is not an academic either, to be credentialed in ways that they were not, and to have a kind of institutional prestige and security. And I will, and then when I got married to a fellow graduate student at Yale, and he was getting jobs as what we call a trailing spouse, like Yale was giving him some teaching and Vassar was giving him some teaching to attract me, then he became another reason why I was doing it and why I was staying in. And when I ended that marriage, Mm. I ended the marriage at the same time that I decided I'm leaving academia. And, you know, but looking back, Roxanne, I didn't like the petty politics of academia. I didn't like being on the tenure track at the same time that I was a young mom and especially a young mom of two children, ultimately with special needs. I consider myself more than a writer, a teacher. I love teaching. I still teach. I teach for Yale Alumni College. You should take one of my classes, Dr. They're online now. Oh yeah, I'm teaching um, Wuthering Heights tonight. I will. Um, and yes, I teach all these literature classes for Yale and I teach book groups and I'm a book critic for the Boston Globe. And so, I, I mean, I, I consider myself always an advocate for children, for people with autism, autistic people, and for literature. And I figured out a way now I have, you know, as my mother would say. To blend it. To blend it. Exactly. 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 And, you know, one of the, there's two things I want to make sure we cover before we get to the end. One of the most magical parts of the book for me was the way your father flourished with the love, I'm not sure I'm going to say his wife's name, Yasuko? Yasuko, yeah. Yasuko. And it goes back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, that there's nothing like being loved and seen. Exactly, Roxanne, yes. And my father got it so right the third time 
And he had this really great, incredible love that was so moving for all of us to witness. And I think, you know, it's interesting. So my father wrote a number of books, Making of Modern Drama is one of his most famous books, still used as a textbook. Um, Most of his books are about literature and theater, but he wrote a memoir. And he wrote a memoir that was published when I was in high school, and it was called Faith, Sex, Mystery. And he wrote that memoir, and in that memoir, he exposed himself. He talked about his sexuality. He talked about how when he was in his 20s and he converted from Judaism to Catholicism, he, so he admitted that, that he had done that. He had kept that a secret. His parents never knew they converted to Catholicism. And, you know, he was writing for Catholic magazines, and they'd say, this is a little weird. And he'd be like, they really needed critics, you know, so they hired me. So he kept it a secret from them. It was pre-internet. There was no way for them to find out. He exposed himself on the page. He talked about going to prostitutes. He talked about having affairs. He talked about his guilt around his infidelity. He talked about falling away from the church because of his sexuality. Six months later, he meets my stepmother Mm. and falls in love with her. And I don't think it's an accident. In a sense, I am single now. I'm not dating anyone. I took a little hiatus from dating when I was working on this book. I needed to focus on not being the good girl, Mm -hmm. cheering up men and boosting them and buoying them, which had been my tendency. But I do think that that great love for him was enabled by his finally working through and processing Mm -hmm. some of the stuff that he had not wanted to acknowledge or admit and in allowing himself to go back to your comment that the psychiatrist made, right? To be flawed on the page, to be vulnerable on the page. He then was able to find someone who accepted him Mm. in all this complexity and knew the truth about things that we didn't know. Like, remember I talk in the book about how when he's diagnosed with cancer, we're at a doctor's appointment and the doctor's like, how old are you? And he says, oh, I'm 74. (laughs) And my sister's like, well, like, like, and we were, and, and we went to Yossico and we said, oh, we're a little worried. You know, he's got tumors in his brain. Maybe he got confused. And she's like, Oh, he's 74. Yeah, he's really born in 1923, not 1925. Exactly. And it was like, who's who in America? 1925, Richard Gilman. But then, nope, two years. And I remember when I talked to the writer, Lori Siegel, who is a wonderful friend of my parents and a huge help when I was on this book. And a gifted writer. Oh, such a good writer. Such a good writer. She dedicated one of her children's books to me and Claire. I remember huh. that was when I realized that maybe I was dealing with famous people because I'm librarian and rarely saying, is this you and your sister, like Priscilla and Claire? But I remember her saying to me when I interviewed her as I was working on this book and she said, there's something so poignant and touching about that lie about his age. It's two years, Roxanne. If you're going to knock years off your age, why would you knock five? But yeah, maybe go for 10. Go for 10, exactly. But he did too, because somehow that made him feel just a little bit better about his belatedness and coming to a career or, you know, whatever it might be. You know, Priscilla, your father's third wife was Japanese and he and his wife were going back and forth, spending time in Japan where she taught and here in New York where he taught. And, you know, we're fast forwarding and I'm going to insist that people read the book. But as your father was dying, 
and you were there, he was still struggling with his ambition and his accomplishments or his lack of accomplishments in his eye. In his eyes, sadly. And yes. and you ask him, shouldn't he use his remaining days to love and be loved? Yep. And do you think he achieved any piece of that? Do you think that between you and your sister and your brother and his wife, do you think he got anywhere near that? I think he got a lot closer, Roxanne. I mm -hmm. really do. And so he's diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Um, he, we thought he was 72, actually 74. And they gave him seven months to live. And he ended up living almost 10 years. The last couple of years, not able to speak and in a very reduced condition. But when he was initially diagnosed, you know, he would say these things like, I still haven't written my life's work. And we would all say, what? Like the making of Wanda Drama is like the iconic book about Bochner, Brecht, Beckett, et cetera. And you've written this beautiful memoir, and you've written this amazing book on Chekhov. And, uh, and he wanted to write another book about his relationship with Yasuko and about Japan and his life there. And he's unable to do that. But I felt a peace and a serenity in him. And I write about when I would go to Japan to visit him and I wasn't able to be with him nearly as much as I wanted because I had little children that I couldn't, yeah. especially having an autistic child who I couldn't take on a plane because he wouldn't have been able to handle it. So I would go for two weeks and I would go over every morning to their apartment in Kyoto and I would read him poetry and I would sing to him. And at first I thought, you know, he's not really hearing me. This is not happening. And Yasuko insisted that he did. And then I would see tears coming out of his eyes when I read, mm. for example, like The Lake Isle of Innisfree or poems by Gerard Greenlee Hopkins, other people that were important to us. And I think Yasuko, remember I write about how when I first went to see him, he was in a hospital bed that had been set up in the apartment. And I knew that, and I was expecting it to be terrible. And I was expect I was stealing myself and thinking, this is going to be so depressing. And I quote this John Donne poem saying, you know, love had made this little room and everywhere. In other words, mm. yes, he was confined. Yes, he couldn't walk. Yes, he couldn't speak. But love was brimming, love was pervading that room. And she had hung the little super grover from Sesame Street that my sister and I had sent and there were pictures of us all around and there were plants and there was music and there was literature and there was my stepmother's steady, loving devotion to him. And I think she, when she announced his death to us, she said, you know, he was ready to go and he was at peace and mm -hmm. she was with him when he slipped away, finally. So I, I actually do believe that he did attain a kind of peace and serenity mm -hmm. that he would never have dreamed of when he was an ambitious, secure, young critic. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing that struck me is that as you were saying that to him, did it have an element of liberating you? Yes, because, you know, I thought to myself, shouldn't he spend his days being loved? And I didn't actually say that to him, but I thought it. And I sent him letters saying, Daddy, if you never write another word, you will have accomplished, you know, more than most people ever dream of and giving him all of these memories of our childhood and all the wonderful things that he had given to me. I was 27 when he was diagnosed with cancer. And I, at that time, was starting to feel disaffected with academia mm -hmm. and starting to think, I don't want to be on this merry-go-round anymore. I don't want to be chasing gold stars and 
golden hoops anymore. And I want to find value and meaning in being a parent to my children and in being a teacher because I'm helping people and nurturing them and mentoring them as opposed to publish, publish, publish and get something in the most acclaimed journal and have the most prestigious job. So that was really the start of my moving away from that aggressive yeah. competitive structure that my parents had wanted for me. Yeah, that was the sense I got as I read it. And I thought, yeah, well, maybe you're talking to yourself. Yes, absolutely. As well. Oh, yeah. definitely, yes. So here's what I'd like to close with. If you would read for us, and I'm going to let your reading of this be the very end of our conversation. So before... I have you contextualize this and read it to us. I want to thank you for writing this book because we all have parents. Yes. <laughs> so we may know them. We may not know them. Mm -hmm. And everyone grapples with that relationship in a profound way. Yes. And I think your book gives us a roadmap of being loving but clear-sighted. Oh. And I think sometimes people live in one in another world. They either live in the denial world yes. or they live in the angry world. Yes. And so I like the roadmap that you provide to a different way or another way and a good way for us to reconcile our relationship with our parents who were, like us, human. Yes, yes. So with that, I'm going to ask you to read this because this book is a love letter to your dad and this reflects it. Well, thank you so much. So you want me to read um, from Stanley Kaufman's speech. Um, so my father's last book, and this was, if you remember, Roxanne, he asked me when he was first diagnosed with terminal cancer, could you make sure that my pieces that have never been published are collected and edited and put into a volume? And this was a party that Yale School of Drama was having to celebrate the publication of The Drama is Coming Now. It's the title of my father's final book. And Stanley Kaufman, another extremely complicated, very problematic, extraordinarily endearing man, and one of my father's colleagues and dear friends, the film critic from the New Republic, he was very old at this time, but he got up and he gave this extraordinary speech. And I write that one passage from that speech struck me with its wisdom, its empathy, and its penetrating appreciation of my father's essential vulnerability. And this is Stanley. There's some congruence between true serious criticism and belief in something large or dear or dangerous. For Dick, to enter the universe of art, to enter its service as best one can as a critic, is to manifest some belief, or at least, maybe more important, some hunger for belief. That, for me, is the key to all Dick's work. I can't separate it, this book or that book or the other book, from faith, sex, and mystery. He put it on record that his spiritual life is part of the tissue of his artistic life. When I took down my copy 
of Faith Sex Mystery. I found that I'd stuck in it a copy of the review from the New York Times by the novelist Mary Gordon. She said about the book, it has nothing of the museum piece about it. Rather, it is the cry of the living, wounded soul, hungering for the promise of a larger life. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at R.J. Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.